In the mid-1700s, French missionary Lievin Bonaventure Proyart traveled Africa's Congo River, chronicling his observations about the plants, animals, and peoples of the region. Here's a fascinating excerpt from his 1776 book, History of Loango, Kakanga, and Other Kingdoms in Africa, wherein his crew encountered a massive set of footprints trailing across the jungle floor. Bonaventure reflected, It must be monstrous. The prints of its claws are seen upon the earth and formed an impression on it of about three feet in circumference. In observing the posture and disposition of the footprints, they concluded that it did not run this part of the way, and rather that it carried its claws at a distance of seven or eight feet one from the other. The only animal remotely large enough to make such tracks would be an elephant. But elephants don't have clawed feet, so what kind of behemoth had passed through ahead of them? Bonaventure never did find that mystery beast, but not long after, dinosaurs entered the public consciousness. Soon, explorers who followed in his footsteps started to suspect that Africa might be hiding some terrible lizards. I'm Emery Coolcats. Welcome to the Museum of Natural Mystery. This story is a weird one. It starts in 1909, a time when Africa was thought of as the Dark Continent, because in those days it was perfectly acceptable to classify an entire landmass by the color of its people's skin. The world viewed Africa as a savage, unexplored realm that produced primitive peoples and bloodthirsty beasts. Legends of a huge, violent, water-dwelling monster had been swirling out of the vast and varied rainforest regions of Africa since at least the days of Bonaventure, an animal larger than an elephant, with the head and tail of a crocodile, the neck of a python, and the horns of a rhinoceros. Today, we commonly refer to this fabled creature as Mokeli Mbembe, a name that means one who stops the flow of rivers. Said to live deep in the swamps and rivers surrounding Lake Tele and the Likuala region of the Congo Basin, Michele Mbembe is generally reported to have an unnaturally foul disposition, never hesitating to kill hippos and crocodiles on sight. Any boats foolish enough to venture too close will surely be flipped, and the occupants gored, drowned, or crushed by the monster. If you caught my last episode, you might remember that by 1909, Tyrannosaurus Rex had made its debut in the United States, stoking the fires of a worldwide obsession with dinosaurs. 
Around the same time, a set of gigantic, pristine sauropod fossils had been discovered in German-controlled West Africa. A world-famous big-game hunter named Carl Hagenbeck heard the rumors of a large monster in Africa, saw the steady stream of new, colossal dinosaur bones, and was the first to wonder aloud if the two things weren't related. In his 1909 autobiography, Beasts and Men, Hagenbeck wrote, Some years ago, I received reports of the existence of an immense and wholly unknown animal said to inhabit the interior of Rhodesia. The natives had told both my informants that in the depth of the great swamps there dwelt a huge monster, half elephant, half dragon. It seems to me that it can only be some kind of dinosaur, seemingly akin to the Brontosaurus. I sent out an expedition to find the monster, but unfortunately they were compelled to return home without having proved anything. These were little more than musings, and Hagenbeck presented no evidence for his theory beyond second-hand reports, but he was a celebrity. A showman, exotic animal dealer, and zoo pioneer. Much of the Western world's knowledge about Africa came from big game hunters just like him, and his words carried weight. To the layman, Africa was the land of man-eaters like the ghost and the darkness. In their minds, the seemingly endless jungles and swamps offered a perfect lost world scenario, a land scarcely changed since dinosaurs walked the earth. American and European news outlets pounced on the idea, with papers like the Washington Post cranking out headlines like Brontosaurus still lives. By 1911, these sensational reports were being published in newspapers as far away as colonial India. Meanwhile, in actual Africa, the science community was wondering just what in the hell these colonizers were talking about. E.C. Chubb, resident zoologist for the Rhodesian Museum, had dedicated his career to studying the fauna of interior Rhodesia. He worked closely with the neighboring villages and did his field research in the very area Hagenbeck had named, yet he'd never heard of any such creature as the one Hagenbeck described. Chubb quickly developed a respectful contempt for Hagenbeck's undermining of his work, stating that the half-elephant, half-dragon description suggested a biologically impossible chimera rather than a dinosaur. Unlike the rest of the world, the African press was equally skeptical. The Ugandan Herald, for example, wrote, there may be no truth whatever in the story, and probably there is not. These dismissals from local news outlets and experts probably should have been the end of the matter, but as is so often the case when the idea of a mystery animal takes hold, sightings started pouring in. Now, I pointed out earlier that the Mokele Mbembe is believed to inhabit the Congo Basin, but Hagenbeck's creature hailed from British colonial Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. That's 1,200 miles from its assumed home in Lake Tele. Quite a relocation. How did the narrative shift over a distance 
roughly four times the length of the Grand Canyon. In 1919, London newspapers reported that a man named M. LePage had encountered a monster in the Belgian Congo while out hunting. LePage described a creature 24 feet long, with a pointed snout sporting two tusk-like protrusions and a short horn above its nostrils. It had a scaly hump on its shoulders, and its front feet were hoofed like a horse, but the back hooves were cloven. A terrified LePage fired his rifle at the beast, which just made it angry. It charged, but gave up the chase pretty fast, allowing him to escape. Later, the animal allegedly rampaged through and destroyed the nearby village of Fungarumi, killing several residents. Within weeks, a Belgian prospector and big game hunter by the name of Gapel encountered a similar creature, quote, of the rhinoceros order, with large scales reaching far down its body. The animal had a very thick kangaroo-like tail, a horn on its snout, and a hump on its back. Capel tried to bring the beast down, but it fled into the swamp. During the same year, the Smithsonian Institution dispatched a 32-man expedition from Washington, D.C. to the Likuala region to document the plants and wildlife of interior Africa and collect specimens. The team allegedly found abnormally large tracks and heard strange calls inconsistent with any known animal, so they shifted their focus to search for the rumored monster. However, the journey was cut short when their train mysteriously derailed over waters said to be frequented by the creature, crushing several members of the crew to death beneath the cars and destroying their work. Hagenbeck's initial suggestion of a Rhodesian brontosaur was romantic, and certainly people wanted to believe, but he had no evidence. All he had offered were fun anecdotes, but shots fired, villages leveled, tragic expeditions into the unknown? This was the content that readers truly craved. Action and suspense, but more importantly, tangible brushes with the monster. Clearly, the Congo was the place to look if you wanted to bag a living dinosaur. And so began the invasion of Western adventurers. Quite a few noteworthy cryptid hunters took a crack at Mikeli Mbembe over the years, including our boys Sanderson and Huvelmans from the Minnesota Iceman episode. But the major players didn't come onto the scene until the 1980s. In 1979, cryptozoologist Roy Mackle traveled to Likuala, marveling at the fact that the area was so prone to impassable flooding that it was actually left blank on maps. Mackle had been a biologist with the University of Chicago, specializing in the genetics of fruit flies, but he was also an avid believer in cryptids. When presented with the opportunity to hunt dinosaurs, Mackle hopped on that adventurer's life and never looked back. In Likuala, he met Reverend Eugene Thomas, an American missionary who had worked among the locals since 1955. Thomas directed him to the Bongombe, a pygmy tribe residing near Lake Tele. The tribe had experienced constant interference 
from a group of creatures that they referred to as Mokele Mbembe. These animals had capsized and killed so many of their fishing parties that the tribe erected spiked fences in the river to keep the beasts away. In 1959, one Mokele Mbembe reportedly broke through the fence but had gored itself so badly in the process that the tribe was able to overcome and kill it. In celebration of their victory, they held a great feast, cooking and eating the animal. But everyone who ate from its flesh died from food poisoning or unknown causes shortly after. Over the next decade, Mackle collected countless descriptions of animals 15 to 30 feet long with snake-like heads, long thin tails, and short hind legs possessing three claws. Witnesses repeatedly identified Diplodocus or Apatosaurus as a match in the picture books, yet for all the testimony, the team couldn't land any physical proof. Congolese zoologist Marcelin Agnagna, who had accompanied Mackel on a 1981 expedition, led his own search for Mikeli Mbembe about a year and a half later. After five days of exploring the swamps surrounding Lake Tele, Agnagna and his colleagues spotted a large animal with a small head like a lizard, a long neck, and a broad back wading onto the shore. Agnagna was armed with a Super 8 camera which he'd been itching to use since the trip began. Unfortunately, he was so quick on the draw that in his rush to record, he forgot to remove the lens cap. Agnogda was kind of a shady cat, though, and maybe not the most credible source. For years after, he alternated between claims that he forgot to remove the lens cap and claims that he'd set his Super 8 to macro instead of telephoto. In 1986, Agnogna was brought up on criminal charges for conning a group of young Englishmen. The small, naive team had arrived in search of Mikeli Mbembe on an expedition they'd dubbed Operation Congo, and they'd hired Agnogna on as their guide. The first hint of trouble occurred as they were setting out to Lake Tele. The men ran across another team, led by Dutch biologist Ronald Botterweg, returning from their own monster hunt. Agnagna proceeded to have the Dutch team detained for not having the proper travel documents, resulting in large portions of their research being confiscated. Agnagna then led Operation Congo in circles for a while, inciting natives to hostility against the Englishmen before finally making off with their money, film, and supplies. He was promptly apprehended and ordered to return the goods. The leader of Operation Congo, a young Earth creationist named William Gibbons, introduced a curveball into the hunt for Mikeli Mbembe. Most of the scientists who believed in Mikeli Mbembe, like Mackel, gave up the search in the late 80s. However, there's a contingent of young Earth creationists who have a particular stake in its existence, and they now compose the majority of efforts to find African dinosaurs. You see, young Earth creationists believe the Earth is only about 6,000 years old, and that all of God's creatures were created at the same time. 
according to Gibbons. Perhaps the most exciting prospect for the world of creation science is the possibility that dinosaurs may still be living in the remote jungles of the world. Evolution and its accompanying necessity of long ages of evolutionary development would be hard-pressed to accommodate a living dinosaur. Basically, the belief here is that finding a living dinosaur, unchanged from its heyday, signifies a falsehood in the theory of evolution since animals are supposed to change over long stretches. The only explanation? Life is thousands of years old, not millions. Checkmate, Darwin. But science runs on using evidence to demonstrate why something works, until you find compelling evidence to the contrary. Finding a living, unchanged sauropod would probably just result in an excited re-examining of everything we think we know so far, not some big death blow. Nonetheless, efforts to vanquish evolution theory by finding Michele Mbembe have continued undeterred with William Gibbons at the forefront. Not that he's had much more luck finding proof than any of his predecessors. At present, the most conclusive evidence for Michele Mbembe's existence comes to us from a Japanese film crew performing a flyover of Lake Tele in 1992. A cameraman shooting some b-roll for a documentary noticed a disturbance in the water and captured about 25 seconds of a large object making its way across the surface, leaving a considerable wake trailing behind. The crew believed they had the creature on tape, but experiments to recreate the object have since cast some doubt. One attempt demonstrated that two men paddling a canoe seen from above, produced a nearly identical shape on the water. This raises the big question. What exactly are we looking for when we look for Michele Mbembe? A living sauropod? Because by now you've probably realized, for any consistencies about the creature, like the size, the brownish color, and the violence, the reports usually contain just as many wild inconsistencies. So far, we've heard that the creature walks on giant, three-clawed feet, but it's also supposed to have hooves. Does it walk on all fours or upright like a kangaroo? And what about all those reports of the creature having horns and tusks? In some areas, Michele Mbembe is said to be a three-horned water rhino. These all sound like completely different creatures. One explanation for this is that Michele Mbembe isn't a dinosaur or a monster at all, and that maybe witnesses are just misidentifying known animals as the unknown. Take elephants, for example. When elephants swim, the majority of their bodies are submerged underwater, save for maybe the tops of their heads, backs, and their trunks. Those trunks act as a sort of snorkel, gliding above the water in an S-shape while the rest of the elephant paddles along below. Consider this 1985 encounter in which writer Rory Nugent claimed to have spotted, quote, an elegant, slender French curve skimming across Lake Tele. 
Nugent tried to get a closer look, but unfortunately the local tribe ordered him back at gunpoint, warning that the creature was a god and not to be approached. If it wanted, they said it would approach him, but you can see how something like an elephant's trunk, head, and back might look like the head, neck, and humps of a lake monster, especially when seen at a distance in a flash glimpse or, you know, when someone has a gun pointed at you. There's a great example of how these misidentifications happen in a 2008 episode of Destination Truth starring Josh Gates. After searching for Michele Mbembe at length with no results, Gates and his crew are about ready to call their investigation a bust. Then, while shooting footage of the water from their boat, they spot what appears to be the slippery, gray-brown humps of a huge creature off in the distance. The animal is there a moment, then gone. The crew excitedly reviews their footage frame by frame, only to find that what they'd actually caught was a pair of submerged hippopotamuses. The hippos happened to be swimming one in front of the other, making them look like one much bigger, much stranger animal. If Michele Mbembe is a case of mistaken identity, the comical-looking hippopotamus is a likely suspect. Hippos weigh in at 4,000 to 6,000 pounds, and while they spend most of their time in water, they can sprint faster than a human while on land. Though herbivores, they will kill anything, from crocodiles to big cats to rhinos. Hippos are notorious for flipping boats, dragging people into the water to drown them, trampling them, goring them with their tusks, and literally biting their heads off. They're monstrous enough without any help from legend, and an unassuming traveler stumbling upon a hippo by boat might find themselves promptly savaged. Granted, quite a few of the Michele Mbembe accounts specifically mention that the creature kills hippos, usually by impalement, which could indicate a rhinoceros. Though not much of a swimmer, the rhino is a large, aggressive, elephantine herbivore. They don't have the best eyesight, so they spook easily. Any critter that gets too close too quick is liable to find itself run down or speared. Although, African rhinos are grassland residents and don't tend to live in the jungle. But maybe that means that some of the more remote rainforest tribes wouldn't recognize a rhino so easily if they met one. Of course, all these suggestions hinge on the notion that the local tribes are too quaint to recognize what their own eyes are seeing. Explorers fall into this pit over and over again. Plenty of the Michele Mbembe sightings are actually descriptions of different creatures known to different tribes by different names, such as the Ngala or the Chipekwi. Oftentimes, the tribes outright stated that the names referred to spirits or creatures from folklore, not real animals. The kinds of beings you tell your kids about to keep them from straying into dangerous areas. But, because the whole craze started with Hagenbeck's assertion of an African brontosaurus, these outlanders came looking for an African brontosaurus. 
The varying stories had enough in common that explorers just figured these were all tales of one animal, and that the different tribesfolk were too simple or too isolated to realize it was all one beast. They picked a few details that favored their narrative here, ignored a few that didn't there, and combined others until they had distilled several cultures worth of folklore into one Makeli Mbembe. Rumors of large, unknown animals in the African interior date back hundreds of years, but the concept of dinosaurs surviving in Africa is a wholly 20th century phenomenon. It's an idea that has everything to do with the misconceptions or willful ignorance about Africa on the part of colonizers and invaders throughout the 1900s. Dinosaurs on the Dark Continent were far preferable to acknowledging that African lands and peoples had evolved since the dawn of time, just like everywhere else. What hasn't evolved is the search for a tail-dragging, swamp-dwelling brontosaurus. Our knowledge of sauropod dinosaurs has advanced by leaps and bounds since 1909, but Michele Mbembe still resembles the very first restorations of sauropods based in outdated science. If you want to find a current day sauropod, a swamp is really not the best place to look. We now know that dinosaurs like Brontosaurus and Diplodocus held their necks parallel to the ground, which would make raising their heads above water level pretty difficult, especially in the S-like manner so commonly reported now, some sauropods, like Brachiosaurus, did have slightly more vertically positioned necks, but these dinosaurs are double or triple the size estimates for Michele Mbembe. When sauropods were first discovered, scientists theorized that the only way to support their mass was to be submerged in water, hence the notions of swamp wallowing. However, Paleontologists have since discovered that sauropod biology solved that problem with large, air-filled pockets inside their bones to help alleviate all that weight, and the volume of these airy spaces would actually make maneuvering through water really cumbersome. But the biggest challenge to the living dinosaur theory is the obvious one, a 100% extinction rate during the KT event. Paleontologists have an excellent fossil record for Africa through the Mesozoic, and the sauropods, like all non-avian dinosaurs, vanish after the KT boundary. It's a common misconception that the term KT boundary refers to the extinction event that killed the dinosaurs, but the KT boundary is an actual physical boundary a layer of rock that exists within the Earth dating back 65 million years. It's the collection of dust and debris that settled worldwide after the asteroid impact. Dig slightly deeper below the boundary line into the Cretaceous and you'll find hella dinosaurs, but above the line, after the KT event, not one dinosaur. I really can't stress this enough. There has never been a single non-avian dinosaur fossil found beyond this point anywhere on Earth. But 
for the sake of argument, let's say some lucky stragglers somehow made it through. That's not so hard to believe. Life finds a way. If a sauropod or sauropod-like lingerer somehow bridged the 65 million year gap into the modern day, it'd be pretty impossible for one lone specimen to survive since the Mesozoic, which means there'd have to be a breeding population. This breaks all the rules of modern field ecology. In a recent study tracking rediscovery rates for mammals presumed extinct, zoologists Diana Fisher and Simon Blomberg determined that if investigations did manage to locate an extant species, it happened after three to six searches on average. After that point, the likelihood of rediscovery drops off a cliff. Given that there's been dozens of expeditions to find Mokele Mbembe, the odds that the creature is out there are pretty dismal. Our maps of the Congo have filled in quite a bit since the mid-1900s. The era of the Dark Continent has been rightly put to rest. Today, African paleontology and biology is pretty robust, and there are countless scientists working on non-cryptid-related issues in Makeli Mbembe country every day. None of them have spotted a living dinosaur. One sauropod would have to consume tons of food in a day to survive, so a population should be having a noticeable effect on the flora. There should be some hint of life, but no bones, skins, scat, or verifiable tracks have ever been found. And yet, reports continue to come in from tribal natives and explorers of dinosaurs matching the postures and behaviors of these obsolete doppelgangers from turn-of-the-century artwork. Why? In the early days of the Mikeli Mbembe, outsiders would show up with their fancy equipment asking the region's tribes to describe animals they'd seen. If the natives told of spirits, folklore, or animals that didn't align with sauropods, those types of witness accounts were passed over. Then, the outsiders whipped out their picture books full of dinosaurs. If the natives picked the brontosaurus, these strangers would pay them a lot of money to go out on the river in search of these odd animals. Even if they found nothing, the strangers would come back in a few months or years, coax another dinosaur account, and spend their money again. This pattern has played out numerous times over the past 110 years, but the paleontological revolution has only really taken place within the last couple decades. For most of that duration, well into the late 80s at least, dinosaur art and books still regularly portrayed sauropods as giant swamp monsters. The villagers of the Congo Basin kind of figured out that if they described the creatures in those pictures to the strangers, they could make a tidy sum telling eager adventurers what they wanted to hear. The array of dinosaurs shown in the reference materials might also explain the increase in descriptions matching other dinosaur types like theropods and ceratopsians too. Nowadays, 
There are several well-known tour guides in the area who are in the exclusive business of showing expeditions around Michele Mbembe's popular haunts. Over time, the economy of the region has adapted to welcome outsiders with their cameras and their dinosaur books. It borders on the kind of tourism industry you'd see in other places with cryptid sightings, towns like Roswell, New Mexico, or Cuero, Texas. The further you radiate out from the areas around Lake Tele, the less likely you are to meet tribes who claim to have seen or heard of anything like Michele Mbembe. It's gotten tougher for enthusiasts to discern which witness accounts are genuine and which are theatrics, but perhaps that's a lingering penalty for the myth of the Dark Continent. If the world at large had displayed more respect for local folklore and beliefs from the outset, visitors probably wouldn't have to work so hard to distinguish whether or not someone was saying they'd seen a dinosaur for a quick buck. Speaking of which, let's jump back a bit to Carl Hagenbeck, who kicked off this non-avian goose chase in 1909. Remember that on top of being a world-famous showman, Hagenbeck was a zoo tycoon. When his book Beasts and Men dropped, the American Diplodocus had just recently been discovered. Diplodocus was the biggest thing since Tyrannosaurus, and the whole world was marveling at its size. Shortly after his book stirred up all that hype, Hagenbeck suspiciously unveiled a 66-foot Diplodocus statue at his Hamburg Zoo, rendered as the scientists of the time thought it might have looked in life. See Diplodocus in the flesh, he offered, and while adventure seekers were abandoning their careers in search of living dinosaurs, Hagenbeck's lifelike model was making paper. And those news stories about LePage and Capel and the doomed Smithsonian expedition in 1919? The reports that shifted the search over to the Congo? Well, in 1920, the London newspapers that had initially circulated those stories were forced to print retractions. The Smithsonian Institution actually called them out, stating that the trip that had ended in a train crash was not a search for living dinosaurs, and to stop using their crew's tragedy for sensationalist nonsense. The Smithsonian even went so far as to out LePage as a troll. Mr. LePage, it seems, was a known practical joker and liar. Not only had he submitted his monster account for laughs, but it turned out that Mr. Gapel never existed. That account had been LePage too, writing in under a different name. So, if the inciting report was a cash grab and the follow-up stories were a hoax, why keep up the search? Where does that leave us? In all likelihood, the current incarnation of Michele Mbembe is a hodgepodge of misidentified animals and mythical creatures, of hopeful optimism and genuine curiosity, of inaccurate science and ulterior motives, and perhaps beneath the veneer of discovery, of greed. But 
that's not to say that it's all been for nothing. While probably not a sauropod, there's always a chance that Michele Mbembe is a genuine animal yet unknown to science. After all, by the estimate of the Congolese government, about 80% of the Lee Koala region is still uncharted. To quote Carl Hagenbeck after his alleged unsuccessful stab at tracking the cryptid, Notwithstanding this failure, I have not relinquished the hope of being able to present science with indisputable evidence of the existence of the monster. And perhaps if I succeed in this enterprise, naturalists all the world over will be roused to hunt vigorously for other unknown animals. For if this prodigious dinosaur, which is supposed to have been extinct for hundreds of thousands of years, be still in existence, what other wonders may not be brought to light? It wouldn't be the first time a seemingly impossible species has been discovered in the Congo rainforests. Take the okapi, a sort of part zebra, part giraffe, part donkey-looking animal. Written off, Throughout the 1800s as a sort of African unicorn, the okapi was found living in the deep Congo in 1901. In late 2006, biologists located a population of gorillas that had formed a hidden community in the rainforest. The team identified at least 1,000 individuals that had completely evaded human detection up to that point. The brash crew behind Operation Congo, proved themselves to be anything but smooth operators when they all got swindled by Agnagna, but even that bumbling excursion struck gold. William Gibbons may not have found his Michele Mbembe, but he did discover a new subspecies of monkey on that trip, Saracebus galeridus, the crestless mangabe monkey. And those are just a few of the amazing creatures to come out of the Congo in the last century, so perhaps it's not so naive to hold out hope after all. The dinosaurs may be well and truly gone, but there's plenty else to be found if someone's out there looking. The theme song for Museum of Natural Mystery was created by Michael Guy Bowman. To discover more of his work, visit bowman.bandcamp.com. Museum of Natural Mystery is part of the Palmcast Network for Pomegranate Magazine, and be sure to check out pommag.com for a closer look at the search for Michele Mbembe. I wasn't joking when I said there have been dozens of expeditions, far more than I could possibly fit into this episode, even though I really wanted to. So I'll be putting up a pretty detailed history of noteworthy attempts to find the creature in the companion post. There will also be some images and videos like that Japanese documentary footage. So don't forget, that's pommag.com, P-O-M-E-M-A-G.com. 
If you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions for future topics, you can send them to me at natmysterypodcast at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at at natmysterycast. Museum of Natural Mystery is on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Subscribe to catch the latest episodes as they happen, and if you like the show, maybe leave a review. It helps listeners who are interested in cryptids like Michele Mbembe find the show, and it lets me know how I'm doing. In all seriousness, listeners, thanks so much for all the kind reviews so far. It means the world to me to know that you're all out there tuning in and enjoying the ride. That being said, I do have to let you know that this next episode will be the season 2 finale. I'll be taking a short hiatus for a few months while I organize the content for season 3, but don't go away, because I'll still be dropping some small wonders and maybe another Pokemon episode or two in the interim. I've got some neat ideas lined up for those. In today's episode, I referenced the discovery of the sauropod Diplodocus a couple times, and spoiler alert, our finale is going to be about how Diplodocus went worldwide. That'll be next time on Museum of Natural Mystery. And until then, I'm Emery Coolcats. Thanks for listening. <laughs>